Um, and we're going to get started with our um, expert panel discussion. Um, so I'm just going to introduce the members of the panel here. So we're going to get a lot of different perspectives on the themes that emerged from the play. Um, so first off, um, on my far left here is Peter Kahn. Um, Peter is a writer and director. His work ranges across performance forms, from opera to small-scale rural touring theatre. Um, and Peter's worked as a professional actor, director and playwright since 1980 and has written plays for small-scale touring companies um, and uh, also librettos for cantata and operas and screenplays for television and video. Um, his work as a director includes three years as artistic director of Pentabus Theatre and he also leads workshops in all aspects of theatre and drama and lectures at um, higher education level. Um, then it, uh, next to Peter is Dr. Catherine Cox. Um, Catherine is Director of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland at University College Dublin and co-convener of A Malady of Migration. Um, she's the author of Negotiating Insanity in the Southeast of Ireland, 1830 to 1900, co-editor with Hilary Marland of Migration, Health and Ethnicity in the Modern World and with Maria Luddy of Cultures of Care in Irish Medical History. Um, she's also joint principal investigator on the Wellcome Trust funded project Madness, Migration and the Irish in Lancashire, 1850 to 1921. Um, next to Catherine is Professor Brendan Kelly, who is Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at University College Dublin, consultant psychiatrist at the Matter here in Dublin and editor of the Irish Journal of Psychological Medicine. In addition to his medical degree, he also holds doctorates in medicine history, government, governance and law. Um, he's also researched and written on various aspects of psychiatric history and is the author of the forthcoming book Ada English, Patriot and Psychiatry, Psychiatrist, sorry, which is coming out in September 2014. Um, Professor Hilary Marlinzan is founding director of the Centre for the History of Medicine at the University of Warwick and co-convener of A Malady of Migration. She is the author of Dangerous Motherhood, Insanity and Childbirth in Victorian Britain and of Health and Girlhood in Britain, 1874 to 1920. And she's also co-editor with Catherine um, of the edited collection Migration, Health and Ethnicity in the Modern World. She's joint principal investigator on the Wellcome Trust funded project Madness Migration in the Irish in Lancashire, um, again with Catherine. And so just to kind of start um, things off before I kind of open the floor to questions, um, just thought I'd ask Peter, first of all, um, can you talk a little bit about the creative process here with the play? Um, so how did you actually come up with the, the ideas and right. put the whole thing together? Great, I, I'm, I'll talk about that. I'll just put it, it into context a little bit first, if I may, um, of the the collaboration between uh, Talking Birds and the Centres for the History of uh, Medicine. The first one was, I think, six years ago, is that right, Hilary? The 2006, yeah. yes. That was yeah. more than six years ago. Yeah, that's more. Which was um, centred around uh, a hospital that was closing in Coventry. And then last year, we collaborated on a play called uh, The Trade in Lunacy. And it's hoped that... It will, it will lead to a, tr a trilogy, the asylum trilogy, which the one you saw tonight, uh, Malady of Migration, will be the middle one. So um, hopefully we'll get the funding to do the third one. Now this way of working is really exciting. It's a great collaboration. 
uh, particularly for me as a writer, because they do all the research. You know, which means that you know, usually I have to spend hours on the internet and falling asleep in libraries. But they they come up with loads of stuff, so I can spend my time on the internet, internet looking at bikes I can't afford, instead of being distracted by research. Um, and the, the the process is initiated by the academics, uh, which is a great way of doing it. So uh, in this one, Hillary and Catherine. So we'll look, we, this is what we want to look about. We want to, to look at uh, migration and the connections with um, mental disorders amongst Irish migrants in the, in the 19th century. And then they gave us, gave us loads of research. Initially, it was a massive stack of notes from, case notes from Rain Hill. That's why I work with a stick, because I drop research on my foot. Um, not really, it was a bike accident. Um, but so, so that was how it started, was really with the case notes from Rain Hill. And that's why, that, that's where the idea came from, for scattering them all, not just uh, throughout the play and the text, but actually physically throughout the play, uh, visible on the, the set. And then the, then the process is great. Then uh, We have lots of talks, uh, usually with lots of cake. Um, that's the, the great thing about researching with the Centre for the History of Medicine. They don't do health. They do cakes. Um, and then we, we agree on the kind of um, the rough area. Then, uh, then I go away and I have some ideas, talk to talking birds, and come up with a scenario. Then we go back and talk to uh, Catherine and uh, Hillary. So, so we're all collaborating all the time. So it's, a, it's an organic process. And then, then I have to start writing it. And what's brilliant then is that if there's, if there's something I don't know about, there's a whole team of research. Because it's, it's not just Hillary and Catherine. They, they both had teams of postgrads. Uh, two of whom you saw in the play, uh, Laura and Stephen, uh, not only were performers in it, but also were very instrumental in the research. You know, they, they answered my questions with, with very detailed notes. So it's a great way of collaborating. And then, then everybody looks at, uh, at the, the script uh, and sees all the, the wild liberties I've taken with it and says, you can't really do that. Or, yeah, who cares, go on. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Um, so so it's, it's an exciting way of collaborating. Um, for a, and the other thing which, which I really like about it is, is it fudges the, the, the boundaries between art and science, which I, I think should be fudged. You know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't distinguish in between them. Without, without um, art, which teaches you how to imagine, you wouldn't have science, and science affects art. So the two are symbiotic. And so, so collaborations like this are really exciting. Yeah, um, so you mentioned the case notes there. Um, can you, uh, maybe Catherine or Hilary, Hilary, would you like to tell us a bit more about um, the case notes as a source for finding out about um, asylum patients in the 19th century? Well, yes, the scatterings here that were used physically in the play, of course, are just a, a tiny proportion of this absolute mountain of case notes which we worked with. Rainhill Asylum has extremely good records, uh, quite detailed accounts of individual patients as they came into the asylum uh, and as they progressed sometimes through it and out of it, but oftentimes they didn't, as the play indicates, many stayed in these institutions. Um, so these provide quite a, a lot of detail of the experience in the asylum. Um, and in Lancashire we were quite lucky because we found a notebook, which is quite unusual, which gave some indication for many of these cases of their lives just prior to admission to the asylum. It was a notebook to really try and find out the settlement of patients, who should be charged for their, their care. But you garnered 
some information about where they lived, what they'd worked, whether they'd worked, also their wonderings, which were sometimes through Lancashire, but sometimes, as the play also indicated, uh, across the globe. Um, but it's wonderful to see these notes used in this way because, you know, as a historian, historians, we try to use empathy in our work. But the way Peter deals with these notes, he creates this whole story, which we can't do necessarily. So it's really exciting for us as historians, I think, to see our work used in this, in this particular way. I mean, one of the few things that we do have when we, we look at case notes are photographs. And some of the case books have photographs of the patients. But I suppose that's as close as we get for the 19th century, to sort of see, to conceptualise the individual. So that's why Peter's work, I think, is really, really clever. So I, do, I just have to add one thing about, about our collaboration. It's the actors are also collaborators mm -hmm. in it as well, because when, when we come in with a script, um, it's, it's a sort of, um, it's a structure, uh, and what the actors bring to it is also part of the collaboration, and <laughs> well, obviously, as the, as the music does, the uh, musical director, because music's really important. And I think into, you know, the, that, that notion of uh, starting with the case notes and taking, and as you say, creating empathy, I, mean, I, I find it really easy to empathize, mm -hmm. I was fascinated. Mm -hmm by these little fragments of people's histories. And, but huge, huge numbers mm. of them were, was, was quite astonishing. Because I'm, I'm from Liverpool Irish uh, migrant stock, so it, you know, it was part of my history as well. And I think when we were all working on it, we all felt touched by a lot of these, the issues that were raised by it. Yeah, well, we'll open the discussion up to the floor. Does anyone have any questions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd probably be better placed, Hillary, to talk about this um, in, in uh, living in the Coventry area. But absolutely, I mean, first of all, the Irish in the 20th century, as most of us know, continue to experience high um, rates of certainly presentation to um, various uh, psychiatric facilities. But we see generally, and still being discussed among other communities, other migrant communities within London, um, other ethnic groups within Coventry as well, that basically, you know, that there seems to be a link between migration and mental illness, but no sort of concrete answer. Right. Um, but the way you said one of the, the actress suggests that it's not that it's because we're all mad here. Yeah, well, I suppose when what she was the phrase <laughs> was reflecting there is an awareness um, in the 19th century among English doctors that while they were seeing these huge number of patients coming into their asylums in Lancashire, at that same time, there was a very high committal rate in Ireland. And so there was this concern about this alleged increase in insanity, generally within the British Isles, but the increase seemed to be higher within Ireland than it did elsewhere. Now, the reasons for those are highly complex, as you can imagine. But, you know, from, from some it seemed to suggest that the Irish racially were inclined to have higher, were great more vulnerable, basically, to mental illness. And I think that's the point Therese was reflecting there. But you're right, there are enormous parallels too yeah. with, with current concerns about migration and parallels with the, sort, the kind of poor state of health, of poverty which many migrants arrive in to start with and then they face all these challenges of not being able to find work and being isolated, uh, again in very poor economic circumstances. So I think it's a really interesting way of reflecting about yeah. 
current issues. Friends, yeah. you might like to come in sure. and give kind of a more modern perspective on sure. from well, your experience. Yeah. You know, in, in response to your question, there's very compelling evidence that migrants into any country have increased rates of most kinds of mental disorder, particularly, you know, even including severe mental disorders, say like schizophrenia. If you look at migrants who migrated into London, for example, say 20 or 30 years ago, their rates of being diagnosed with schizophrenia are almost double those of so-called native um, Londoners, shall we say. And um, there's, you know, they looked at so many reasons for this. They wondered, did people prone to mental illness migrate? And that's not the case. They wondered, did people bring the risk from their home country with them, perhaps an increased risk? And that appears not to be the case as well. Um, they wondered, were psychiatrists simply being racist or just not understanding? Um, so they brought in psychiatrists from other countries who said that far from that, um, there was underdiagnosis. Um, the most compelling finding from London, though, and it speaks to the theme of this play, is that in contemporary London, if you're a migrant into London, your increased risk of schizophrenia is inversely proportional to the size of the migrant group. So if you're sort of, um, if you have a large group of similar ethnicity in London, you're part of a community, your increased risk of illness is a lot less than it would be if you, your migrant group was tiny in London. So there seems to be a buffering effect of community. And that clearly was sort of sort of broken um, in in the kind of setting that this play was what was set in. Um, there aren't many Irish contemporary Irish figures, uh, but there is some preliminary evidence that of migrants into Ireland at the moment, they certainly have increased rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, and they appear to have slightly increased rates of hospitalisation with schizophrenia here in Dublin as well. Um, the final point on this is even more fascinating, is if you look at the second generation of migrants in London, these are the children of migrants. These individuals never migrated themselves. They've grown up in London, but they're the children of migrants. Their increased risk of mental disorder is even greater than the increased risk their parents experienced, which again speaks very strongly, not to a biological condition, but to a, some kind of socially defined risk. So that's being caught between two cultures and two sets of expectations. Sure. Presumably yeah. it's something like that. Yeah. Well, that's something that surprised us with our research, that we you know, expected Irish migrants to have this community when they arrived in Lancashire. But time and again, the case notes and other records spoke of their isolation, the fact they had no family. Um, and they were often shipped off to Whittingham Asylum, which was particularly catering for chronic cases. But part of the reason they were taken there was because, the, and it says this very clearly in the, in the reports, that they had no one to collect them. They didn't know anyone. No one was going to visit them. So that was quite a, a surprise yeah. to us, I think, as researchers as well. Because the advice was very much, if you have a family and you're in an asylum and you're, you know, you're no longer, you're harmless or incurable, you would be sent back to the workhouse. But that's if you have a family. But if you have no family, you'd be sent to Whittingham. And some spent decades there and eventually mm -hmm. died. That sounds quite Uh, well, it's, yes, I think it's really interesting, and I, I think it, it's amazing that the whole of the Lancashire factory communities weren't, weren't sent to asylums, because you're right. I mean, the conditions were so terrible, and, of course, there was child labour, so children started working in the mills at a very young age. Um, and there's been quite a, you know, a lot of historical work about the pressures, really, of industrialisation and, and capitalism, how that really kind of impacted not only on causing mental illness but also in family responses because the whole family is engaged in this horrible 
timed labour as well, which is something which is quite new, that you have to clock in early in the morning. You're there all day. There's no one to take care of other family members. So it had a huge number of implications, I think, not only for perhaps causing mental illness, but actually the way people responded to it. And some historians have also argued this is what fed these huge asylums, the fact that the family were just simply in this industrial system really unable to care for for people who became mentally ill. So they were more ready to to move people into specialised institutions. And the doctors who refer to people entering them in very poor bodily health, Mm -hmm. poverty and all these things, there's repeated reference to sort of patients being very thin, very weak, so the effects of poverty physically (coughs) as well as Mm -hmm. as mentally Mm -hmm. on their bodies. So there is an evidence of that. But also of not being able to find a job. Yeah, exactly, the disappointment. You know, and that tramping around, trying to find work, getting more and more ill, more and more isolated. So it was the whole economy was absolutely devastating, really, for mental health as well as physical health. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid point, and certainly when I teach this to my undergraduate students, um, many of whom unfortunately now will be um, emigrating and you know, they are third years, um, I do sort of remind them, you know, you know, we you know, having Skype and having an iPhone and all these things assumes a certain degree of um, money, basically, and a degree of success and a willingness as well to actually want to be in contact with your home community. But if you feel you've failed, um, you may want to cut off that connection. And so I suppose, you know, when I sort of talk to my students and they're heading off and teaching this, I sort of say, well, remind yourselves that actually it can be very tough. It's not as easy to stay in contact and to, you know, be supportive to, to, to your friend groups and try and keep those community networks going because it is very easy to slip out of them mm. if you're having difficulties. So, yeah. And I think Peter dealt with that really beautifully, particularly with that song, that kind of longing, that nostalgia sort of for place. Mm-hmm. Um, the geography, yeah. not not just for missing people, but also the whole kind of yeah. I mean, it, I, I think I think you're right. I think the, the about the global uh, the, about the e- economic drive to it. In, in a way, that the, because I know it's because I've got kids that at the moment they're, they're going to be migrant workers, whether they're in this country or not. There's no jobs for life. You know, you you you, you have to move between jobs now, which which is a difficult thing, I think. Uh, and it's, it's quite interesting going back to your uh, point up there, the, uh, which is connected to what you're saying. That the historically, the um, what happened to, to Irish people is they moved from one brutally um, exploitative system uh, to the other, with no no growth and no transition. They went straight from feudalism to, to capitalism, uh, from feudalism in Ireland to capitalism in England, and that that's that's a massive shock. And that's what you know. A lot of the, the, some of those points in, uh, that were being made in the play were about that. Um, you know, which is what, what you were saying about the change in the environment, and it, is, it was massively shocking. Yeah, and Brendan, would you like to come in and talk a little bit about that? Have you come sure. across this issue? Yeah, I mean, we come across it all the time. Um, people who are, say, moved um, or move themselves, imagining they can simply move like pawns on a chessboard, like units in some kind of economic analysis whereas it's far more complex than that. And that speaks to the dehumanizing labor in the, in the mills. Or, you know, you can see it in, in China, for example, in the, in the, in the large um, manufacturing centers where people come in from the uh, 
countryside to work there and in their dormitories they now have nets outside to catch all those who try to die by suicide uh, before they hit the, hit the ground. Um, and you see something to a similar extent in, in similar work today, for example in call centres where people have absolutely no agency, they have no control over their workload, they clock in, they clock out and they're treated as units and therefore have the highest suicide rates of any worker group in this country or in any other country. And it all speaks to the point you're making about the sort of uh, losing sight of the human dimension. And I've spoken to people who find Skype and iPhones make the whole thing worse. They accentuate the distance. And for a certain cohort of people, when they leave, some people are able to completely leave and start a new life and they find they can't do that sometimes because of the constant unsatisfactory Skyping. And then you have other people who find it, um, who fi who find it good, but it's you know, nowhere near enough uh, to live a full and rounded life. Um, and these are some of the kind of dehumanizing problems I think that you know, we were mentioning with the other questioner, questioner earlier. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go from here with the numbers migrating now who you know, will spend years wanting to come back, many gradually deciding conditions will never be right, um, and then they have altered lives they're ill-prepared for. Most of our patients are Roman Catholics that came and went in, but there were a small number of um, what well, they describe them mm. as Church of Ireland um, in the case notes, so obviously that could include other groups. Um, so the vast majority of ours were Roman Catholics. Um, when you look at, I mean, a lot of the patterns that we looked at in England are replicated when you look at Irish migrants in America in the same period and in Australasia. So people have done work on. Australia and New Zealand um, and they found similar high committal rates also Canada as mm. well yeah. and Newfoundland um, but I mean the majority were of our patients anyway were Roman Catholics with a few exceptions and coming from the Midlands and coming from the Midlands of Ireland yeah. as well hence the surname Cox actually uh, that was a patient they and the actors read out a name, Catherine Cox, which is my name, which caused much amusement in the archives. <laughs> it did, actually. Um, um, but that, you know, that is a sort of Midlands name and um, possibly is a relative. Um, but, yeah, um, so they were very much from the Midlands area um, when they, they travelled in. There was, because of the sheer num numbers of Roman Catholics going into the Lancashire region, or into, sorry, the, the um, Lancashire asylums, there was actually a proposal to establish a Catholic a separate Catholic asylum because there were so many of them basically and to cater for their needs, their religious needs. Now this was never acted upon um, but there was a lot of sort of discussion shall we say of attempts to make sure there were priests available um, and also buildings um, for services be they appropriate buildings or mm. otherwise. And there was some very kind of vitriolic responses, yes. we, there were some extracts from the press in the in the play, but those were sort of much kinder comments than some of the ones we've read, and a lot of the very negative commentary was really referring to the the problems of Irish Catholics and the need to, to cater for them as a separate group, and hence this idea, as Catherine said, we better just create a separate institution for all the Roman Catholics, which was you know, an incredible idea. So this idea of the cost as well came out very, very strongly, and in what we read. And I guess if you were to look at migration to Scotland, you might see some interesting variations 
but I think that research still needs to be um, yeah. to be done. done yeah. said earlier on I suppose there's so much work done on Irish migration there's always this emphasis on how strong the networks are of migration Irish migration networks are you know Dave Fitzpatrick of course has done this fantastic work where he's looked at how um, migrants from Ireland who went to parts of Australia basically recreated their townlands almost by bringing you know by really moving as communities one after another um, but I think what we were really struck by was how there were limits to those communities, or certainly those, you know, people could break away or you know fall away from those community sessions, um, and it was often due to looking for work um, and trying to basically make a living. And so they would wander around Lancashire, further afield within England, but also then in some cases, and they would wander to, they would go travel to America um, to serve in in, in the wars, to serve in the, the um, British Army as well in India. And then they would be sent back basically to Liverpool when something went wrong and they ended up um, with some form of behaviour that was seen as mental illness. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot of emphasis amongst all patients, the links with intemperance, but it's, it's exacerbated um, in, in, in the case of the Irish, or at least that's how it's reported. So we have done a, a little bit of statistical analysis as well, and the, the association with drink uh, and mental illness was reportedly much higher amongst Irish patients. I can't remember the precise statistics, but there's quite it's a quite large strange. difference between, the, the, for example, the English patients or non-Irish patients. Um, now, of course, that leads to the question of uh, stigma, preconceptions about the Irish and their cultural habits, which, again, were referred to in the play with connection with the wake and other, other practices. So that, that leads to these really interesting questions about how much particular kinds of behaviour are anticipated or you know, whether there was more drinking amongst the Irish communities. Well, one of the things was, as well, is that... Um, in the, in the places where they lived, there was nowhere else to go. Mm. You know, they, they, they lived in such dire places, the slums were desperate, but they didn't want to go home, or because it was well, not home, where they were living temporarily. And you know, the, you know you've got church, churches aren't open at 11 o'clock at night for socialization, for socializing. Um, and, and so, and when the pubs uh, went up, and they went to the, to the wobble shops, you know, they created their own places where they could socialize with drink. Um, and and also, you know, it's also an economic thing as well. If you've got big groups of people there, you can make money out of selling alcohol to them as well. So a lot of it still comes down to economics as well. Well, I mean, the, what's quite interesting is if you look at Irish uh, patients in asylums in Ireland, there are larger numbers of men, single men, are admitted. Um, but if you look at the migrant groups, they're admitted in almost equal numbers. Sometimes it's likely more women are admitted. Um, and the women are more likely to be domestic servants. Mm -hmm. So they're particularly vulnerable to you know, poverty, to losing their job. In one case, if I remember correctly, um, the, employee, the employer had kept the clothes of the woman, basically, when they sacked her and she was sort of left penniless. So they were a very, very vulnerable group when things went wrong, basically. I mean, it's quite interesting, the Irish, you know, 
the Irish workers when they came in in the 19th century post-famine as well as famine, they were seen as a very vital source of labour. They were welcomed during periods of high, uh, you know, good times, basically. Um, and, but then that, of course, shifts when things would go down, and then they're described as sort of, um, you know, responsible for declining wages and other issues. So, yeah, but that's the, that's the overall profile of, of women, yeah, I'm a, Well, they, some patients were cured. Um, Catherine Cox was cured, and then she came back <laughs> in again. <laughs> and they rolled their eyes, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> yes, there's still that revolving, that revolving door phenomenon, which you have today, of course, that patients get discharged and they, they come back in. What was interesting amongst the Irish patients, again, comparing them with English and the non-Irish patients as they tended to be stayers. They tended to stay in asylums, partly because of the reasons we've, we've mentioned that they, there was no one to collect them, there was, uh, they, they were particularly isolated, but they do seem to be more liable to, to long-term institutionalisation, and, and many were removed to Whittingham, the chronic asylum, um, and often stayed there till they actually died. So the case in the play of someone who was admitted in the 1860s and died in 1901, I think it was, was, alas, not, not untypical. But, um, I mean, this regime was, had some successes. The idea of moral management was really about um, trying to kind of establish some kind of balance. Ideas of self-worth were very important. Regularity, regular diet, exercise, useful employment... That was pretty much it, and a little bit of medical intervention. Um, but in some instances, it did work. Um, but what, what often happened in these big asylums is that they filled and filled with what were referred to as the more hopeless cases, the chronic cases. And as years went on, those became a larger portion of the, the patient population as a whole. So these asylums were established in the mid-19th century in a period of great optimism, and that diminished um, in the latter part of the 19th century. Um, can I just um, come in there with Peter? Um, so the doctor in the play, um, is he quite... Tip I mean, he seemed quite a kindly figure to me, and yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about him? Maybe? I, I can. The, 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 the sort of... Um the model for him or who, uh, was uh, uh, Dr. Rogers, who was, uh, was an actual figure who, taught, who um, worked at Rain Hill. But also, his, um, the things that he was saying were largely influenced by um, Mr. Uh, Thomas Bakewell, um, who, um, who had that philosophy of treat a, uh, treat a man as rational, he can become rational, treat him as a lunatic, and he'll stay lunatic. There was also George Mann Burroughs, wasn't there? Was, was another yeah. influential and very humane um, psychologist. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the doctors were really trying hard to do it. Yeah. So yes, we wanted that sympathetic doctor who was trying desperately hard uh, to do something against the odds to avoid uh, being inundated, drowned, as uh, Matron Radcliffe said. So so that that, that was the that was the idea that to, to represent the doctors who were trying their best to who was sincerely interested in, in cures and and help. And they kind of got it about migration as well, which again was something we were surprised about. They, it was Dr. Rogers who actually talked about disappointment in his annual reports 
um, and that th particularly about those who gone to America, failed, had to come back, or never got there in the first place and got stuck in Liverpool or Bootle, as the case may be. But um, And he started to, to um, use them on her. He wasn't required to note the nationality of patients. He actually initiated this process himself because mm -hmm. he was so struck by the sheer numbers, initially of Irish, but then, of course, as the 19th century progresses, the, um, you know, the <coughs> influx of patients becomes more global. So you have Chinese patients, etc., etc., And he's the one who starts <coughs> noting this himself. And Brendan, would you like to come in and... Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not at all surprised the psychiatrist was insightful and sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really interesting when you look at the history of psychiatrists, which I'm interested in as a psychiatrist, is um, how, you know, so often they were filled, we were and are filled with good intentions but that um, somehow this very commonly goes wrong, that we're filled with therapeutic enthusiasms and sometimes take them beyond what they should be. And I can understand the desperation some of these doctors felt as they tried treatments or paradigms that today sound ludicrous, but they were looking at you know, buildings with hundreds or thousands of people in them. In the United States, as asylum communities with 13,000 people in them. Um, and I can, to an extent, understand the desperation in the search for treatment or the ways to discharge people. And we have good examples here in Dublin. Um, we have examples from uh, Grange Gorman, St. Brendan's here, where uh, Dr. Connolly Norman was so desperate to get people out, he tried to institute a so-called boarding out scheme where families could take their own family member or another one home for a period of time just to get them outside the walls and give them some semblance of a pattern of normal life. But that was you know, resolutely blocked by various vested interests, uh, mainly by Dublin Castle. Um, so I find the position of psychiatrists incredibly interesting. And there's a very good movie right now out called Camille Claudel, 1915. And it's partly set in, it's all, all set in a French asylum. And the, the asylum doctor there is a most interesting figure. A, a little like tonight's gentleman, he, he, you know, he, he is somewhat kindly, a little removed from reality. Maybe he turns away a little bit from parts of the institution. Um, but he nonetheless wants to discharge the patient. He says, you know, she's a lot better now. Uh, but pressures are brought to bear on him, and he caves in and keeps the patient for decades. And I think that's been my profession's failing, is that we've had these good ideas, these good intentions, but faced with a lot of pressure to take people into asylums or into hospitals, a lot of social pressure from the police, from families, from society, we have too often caved in and um, sort of mopped up that which other people did not want. Well, I guess those who migrated in groups yeah. or families had a better chance. But also they? found employment. I mean, yeah. I suppose we didn't look at, we didn't, which would be really interesting to do, but we didn't look at um, another group who didn't end up in the asylum or, or whatever. But I mean, those that sort of found some form of um, employment. Um, had some form, some form of system that they could work within. They did not seem to end up, certainly in the 19th century. But maybe Brendan, you could talk about well, So certainly today, um, the biggest protective factor is if the migrant uh, individual, very often man, the, the, sort of the, the, the male in the family, can uh, find decent work. That's the single biggest protective factor. I've done a lot of work with Sparasi, the Centre for the Migrants on the, on the North Circular Road. And if, if the sort of breadwinner, whoever it may be, can find decent work, 
uh, that's the single biggest protective factor against all kinds of ill. And that doesn't mean living in a direct provision centre and having to report at one o'clock for dinner and being given 19 euros a week. You know, uh, finding decent work consistent with human dignity is the most important thing. And in the 19th century, there was a big debate about this. But I think the reasons for a high um, population, the asylum population in Ireland at the time, are really, really complex. Um, some of them are about migration, um, mm. the other side. Um, some of them, you know, are, you know, some people have argued that it's because the strongest migrated and the weak were left behind. I certainly don't see any hard epidemiological evidence now or from the past the rates of so-called mental disorder are higher in the Irish than in anyone else. That's a very difficult statement to make because you know, we keep changing as a society what, what the definitions of mental mm -hmm. disorder. And there are legal definitions and clinical definitions and usually the figures from asylums or the, the rates of certification reflect legal definitions which don't just reflect sort of medical definitions either. Um, so, so, and certainly I agree wholeheartedly the, the, the rise in the numbers in Irish asylums is an incredibly complex social phenomenon medical phenomenon a legal phenomenon but my view is that it does not reflect anything like a substantive epidemiological shift in the population you can make arguments about the famine the effect it might have had in various ways on, on, on birthing on all kinds of epigenetic changes but I think the evidence isn't there uh, more recent studies from the 1960s that tended to show increased rates of mental disorder among the Irish are now very clearly um, discredited or very clearly incorrect. Um, as I constantly tell these American journalists, I get about five emails a year about this from people in the US who think this is true, and I, I think the evidence isn't there. There may have been some of it, uh, but certainly I think the bigger factors for the Irish asylums were other non-medical non things insofar as we can figure out. But we keep changing what mental illness is. Like every time the DSM comes out, it's something different. So it's, it's all going to change again in a few years. <laughs> I mean, one thing that's really very interesting is when you actually look at um, patients in Irish asylums, um, and the doctors, like Carswells and others, they want to actually discharge somebody. They want somebody mm. to, to send them home. And they go and look for the family who had originally admitted them. And this can be only a couple of years later. The family's gone. The family has emigrated. And that's not to say they put them in the asylum with the intention of leaving them there. Um, but the point is something happened and they had to move. And they've either moved within Ireland to England or further afield. And that individual gets stuck in the system, basically. Mm. Yes, in theory and in a practice quite often, although what they like to do in, in um, 19th century asylums is to send a patient out on trial, so to have someone take care of them for a, a month, it was quite often to check they were okay, so they called it a sort of period of convalescence in some institutions. So again, you had a much better chance, I think, of going out if you had someone to, to collect you. Um, and, and actually, towards the end of the 19th century, um, there are various associations set up to try to obtain employment for discharged lunatics, as they were known. So they were kind of aware, really, of this connection between work, meaningful work, um, which might help improve mental health and make sure people didn't end, end up being readmitted. Um, so they were expensive, basically. Yes, they were expensive. You know, the readmission was expensive, so it was an expensive stay. So sometimes they would actually... Um, you know, look at the, the patient's family 
and sort of say, well, have you employment? Are you, you know, are you able to provide for this person? Um, and then, you know, give, mm. put them out on trial. So yeah, yeah, there was a system. It was possible. Can I, can I strike a contemporary note just to finish mm. here on this? Even today, when I seek to discharge somebody from hospital who's under my care, we're always interested in where they're going to. Mm. Um, and it's actually quite difficult on a human level to discharge somebody who has absolutely no family and nowhere to go, to discharge them literally um, to the street, to return to them the piece of cardboard that they're sleeping on that they brought in when they were admitted, simply to give it to them as they leave so they can sleep on the street again that night. It's actually very difficult to do. Well, there was no, there was no sort of system of care in the community then. So a few voluntary organisations, charities would, would perhaps help with um, employment, particularly placing women who could work in service, for example, um, in the late nineteenth century. But it, it, there wasn't much of a safety net really between the the institution and the outside world in the nineteenth century. It's certainly, certainly true. Of that and thank you to the audience for your um, attention and I'd just like to thank our excellent panel here uh, Peter, Catherine, Brendan and Hilary for um, their discussion. Thank you. Thank you.